Welcome to the NYU Journalism Podcast. I'm Carol Schaefer. The way we talk about identity in America is changing. The search for self has always been a troubling task. But the stakes have become increasingly raised as fears over racism, sexism, and homophobia mount in a precarious political climate. A lot of people feel scared. Others feel like they're getting their just desserts. How much of your identity defines your place in America? Is it your access to resources, freedom of movement, and security? Is it a desire or an ability to fit in? Or is it something assumed to be yours by birthright? We'll start off our show today with a story from Eli Kurland about a classmate, Cora Cervantes, who's bracing herself for the worst in Trump's America. Why'd you interview Cora? So Cora is a classmate of mine in my core reporting class, and I noticed over time that she was consistently focused on issues of undocumented immigrants. And I came to find, after getting to know Cora for a while, that she herself was an undocumented immigrant. And so finding out that my classmate had this experience came from this perspective. It was really a golden opportunity to talk with somebody who really understands this. Why don't we hear undocumented viewpoints more? Well, I think that the reason why we don't hear as many undocumented viewpoints goes back a little bit to why the mainstream media was so stumped when Donald Trump was elected president. I think that there's there's an issue in, in some journalism right now where journalists are not physically traveling and going to the places where the the subject of the stories are where you know where you can really get familiar. I didn't travel to a different place to do this story, but I was able to talk to a very well-spoken, articulate individual who had this experience and it was really crucial for me to to talk to somebody who had contacts and what it's like to come to America undocumented and live here with that fear to be able to tell this story. I'm Eli Kurland, and I'm a graduate student at New York University's Journalism School. I have a classmate, Cora Cervantes, who immigrated to East L.A. from Mexico in 1993 when she was six. Cora and the rest of her family were undocumented. They came to the U.S. so her brother with cerebral palsy could get better treatment and acceptance, and her parents could find work opportunities that had dried up in Mexico. At age 30, Cora is a legal U.S. resident today and has a degree from Columbia University, too. But her parents are not documented. They run a childhood education and tutoring business in L.A., but are at risk of being deported at any time. How did your family life influence you guys? Well, I should say that while I am a first-generation college graduate in the U.S., I'm actually a fifth-generation college graduate in Mexico. On my mom's side, my mom's actually a cardiologist, a surgeon. Uh, we're such a stereotype when you're like, you know, and someone's like, I'm a gardener here, but back home I was a neuroscientist. So Well, it's a reality. <laughs> yeah. So my mom's a cardiologist. My dad is an architect. Um, on my mom's side, like my grandpa was a lawyer. Education is something that we've embraced for generations. Um, you know, love of reading was deeply nourished in all of us. Like we all learned to read when we were really little. Like by three, we were all reading. I think there's this love of education and this value of education. Whenever we went to the store, my mom would say, okay, we're not going to buy ice cream or we're not going to eat meat this week, but pick a book that you want. No, I think you mentioned that your your parents are, are still undocumented. Growing up knowing that, that you were undocumented and knowing that members of your family were, I have to imagine that there is 
a major level of fear with that, of deportation. Like I said, I have to imagine that you grew up with a lot of fear. Yeah, you know, it's it's really weird because um, when you're deep in it, you're just in survival mode. I think now when I step back, I'm like, how did I do that? You know, how did I like I used to travel around the state for electoral work undocumented. I used to drive to Texas, Arizona, Nevada undocumented, you know, but I just kind of did it because my parents. There's this thing my mom used to say in Spanish, you know, she says, el miedo te man- tiene pres- prisionero, pero la esperanza te libera. So fear holds you prisoner and hope sets you free. So it was always that, we, you know, we couldn't live in fear. But that doesn't mean that, like, there'd be nights when, because um, my parents both worked really late, where my dad would, like, clockwork, be home by 530 because he was there to, like, check homework and feed us and stuff like that. My mom worked very late. Um, but if it was, like, six and my dad wasn't home, oh, man, that was tense. It was definitely a fear, but it was just kind of like, we just have to keep moving. I think now that I'm older, I feel it more in the sense that I understand what's at stake now more than I did when I was younger. Before, I think I just kind of like suppressed it because I needed to keep going. But now I feel the weight of deportation looming. My sister, who usually flies from D.C. to L.A., like after her graduation, we're planning to take a road trip through very strategic states because I don't even want her to get on a plane because that's how freaked that I am. And she's like, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. And I'm just like, you don't understand. I can't lose you, you know? And it's just, my dad, he always says, I would cross a million borders for you and I would do the same for anyone in my family. So it's, yeah, it, it that fear is very real. Not only for my family, like my next door neighbors are undocumented. My godson's parents are undocumented. A lot of friends that I grew up with, that I organized with as an undocumented student, remain undocumented. This has been our reality. We just, the amount of planning that we're putting now into worst case scenario is probably more intentional than it was, say, a year ago. So w- what kind of planning is going on in terms of the, the worst case scenario? It's It's really sad. Like, for example, this weekend... I was filling out paperwork for a custody agreement with um, my godson's mom. Just in case she gets deported, I might get custody of her son so he could stay in the country. It's like that. That preparation, it's like I'm heading to L.A. at the end of February, and what am I going to go do there? I'm going to put my parents' house under my name so that if they get deported, I'm able to access the house and make sure we make our payments on time. It's, you know, it's... um. Like for friends, you know, um, I, I co-signed some like financial aid loans for friends that fear that they might lose their scholarship tuition or that they might be they need to start saving money just in case for legal fees. And that's already privileged. Like here's someone that's already accessing legal avenues. But yeah, worst case scenario is putting packets together with important documents and, you know, letting someone they know, hey, this is here in case I'm gone. Do you see that fear playing a role in your community, either in subtle or overt ways? Um, well, here's the thing. I got to give my community so much credit. I see more resilience than fear. 
I see concern and worry. Very real, very valid. But they're resilient as fuck. Like, there's no other way to say it. Literally, my way over here, I was on the subway, and there's this woman, Latina, you know, standing next to me. So, I like, I look at her, I look down at my phone, and I just, you know, like, I kind of make a face, like, I know, this is terrible. And, you know, we look at each other, and it's like, like, we see each other, and, like, like I, like, I see her fear. But we still look at each other with, like, I got you, we're going to be okay. So... I do see that fear, but within that split second of seeing fear, I see resilience, and I mean, like I, I have to honor that. And I wish people would see that more, because we just need you to carry this load with us. We don't need you to look down upon us and feel bad for us. This is an issue that impacts all of us, so we need to advance it together. Our next story by Carol Schaefer represents a very different perspective. She's investigating the alt-right, and she came across a millennial who's negotiating the line between traditional republicanism and the alt-right's new brand of white nationalism. You know, covering the alt-right is something that I think would leave the vast majority of journalists conflicted. So how do you handle this story? I worry about giving these people too much of a platform. The alt-right supports stripping away the rights of scores of vulnerable people. But that conflicted feeling, that doubt, I think that's also part of the story. What drew you to this story? I just couldn't believe that it would be 2017 and people actually believed these things. It's terrifying. It's really scary. And I think it's our job as reporters to try and confront that. We have to start addressing it. And this is my way of beginning that process. I met J.P. Sheehan at the NPI conference in Washington, D.C. You know, this one. Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! It was all over the news. The anti-Semitism, the Nazi salutes, the Lugan press, the Nazi term for lying press. It was shocking. But what was most amazing was that everyone insisted that they weren't racist. White nationalism, the alt-right, this was just white identity politics. What's wrong with that? You're the racist. This was something that I heard over and over and over again. I don't really like the term ethno-naturalist, to be perfectly honest. I prefer the term identitarian because it comes across as less encroaching. It sounds more like this is me, like this is how I feel about myself, as opposed to saying like, I'm going to find where there are things I don't agree with and I'm going to go bad, 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 you know, like that. That's JP, and he takes these terms seriously, even though they mean the same thing. Presentation is important. When I met him, he was bubbly and eager to talk to outsiders. As a journalist covering the alt-right, this was a welcome change from skepticism or even open hostility to the press. He told me that he didn't see his movement as hateful or racist at all. He values politeness and good manners and says he hates violence of any kind. At one point, I even say he's a very wholesome boy. Aww. Greg, my friend here said I'm a very wholesome boy. Hooray. I do eat my vegetables. Here's how to make America strong again. Just everyone eat their spinach. No, but 
Popeye? Like, no. are you, like, yes, I, my moral compass is framed around uh, cartoon characters from the 30s. He's joking, but that characterization is not totally far off, and pop culture comes up a lot. Uh, they actually mentioned something like that in Harry Potter. Kind of like that movie Super 8, the J.J. Abrams movie. Stranger Things, it's a reference to Dragon Ball Z. So it's not much of a surprise that pop culture tends to be how he explains moral lessons. Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas is actually a fantastic case against transgenderism. Yeah, see, you made a face, you made a face, you made a face. I never thought I would hear Tim Burton used as an argument for stricter social norms. It's easy enough to see where this is going. Sure, The Nightmare Before Christmas is about accepting yourself as you are. So transgenderism is about trying to be something you're not? It becomes clear that JP and I have some fundamental differences in how we see the world. Where he sees black, I see white, and vice versa. It didn't even make sense to debate him. When there's such a chasm between positions, it feels like nothing is true. JP is president of his Young Republicans Club at his college in Danbury, Connecticut. He's invited me to a meeting. They talk about trade. China is what I got out of it. No, no, it's China. Oh, yeah. Current events. Uh, I think somebody needs to approve Cruz for a mortgage after he housed Bernie. And plans for their upcoming trip to CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. This is the biggest annual conservative event in the country. The biggest names will be there, including Trump. It's a big moment, not only for the group, but for young Republicans everywhere. As far as helping to grow the Republican Party amongst young people, I think that we are at a better time than ever before. For college students in particular, there is a sort of rumbling going on, you know, as Paul Joseph Watson likes to tout, conservatism is becoming the new counterculture. The biggest strategy is media. They want to make daily reports, videos, and other content from the conference. You're definitely right, because, I mean, when you look at people like Gavin yeah, McGinnis, Stephen Crowder, they, they get... No, no, just entertaining, yeah, yeah, yeah in the first place. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what you're talking yeah. about, the waters kind of thing, is, is, is along the it's same funny, lines. It's funny, yeah, right, yeah. right. And I like McGinnis, and I like uh, yeah. you know, those guys. I'm just saying, they're, they're extremely popular because they mix in humor with it, and they do it's it in... It's not, like, as serious. It's not, like, shirt and tie, like... Well, exactly. You know, yeah, These names, if you aren't familiar with them, are alarm bells. Gavin McGinnis was a vice co-founder, but got pushed out because of his politics. He now has a show where he regularly declares his hatred for feminism and uses his platform to denigrate women, homosexuals, and trans people, and has invited open white supremacists on his show. He also started a, quote, Western chauvinist fraternity called the Proud Boys. Paul Joseph Watson, mentioned before by JP, is an InfoWars editor at large, who frequently rants about how immigrants will destroy Western civilization. The Young Republicans Club say that they get most of their news from these alternative sources, not traditional media. It's a diverse group, but this is true for everyone in the club. Traditional media is the enemy. The basis for the accusations for why Trump is a racist, and they go, oh, well, he said all Mexicans are rapists. And you look at what he said, and he says, Mexico, people come from Mexico, some are rapists, some are drug dealers, whatever. Most are good people. You know, going on from that, he's not saying all Mexicans are rapists. He's saying there is a significant amount of illegal immigrants who are raping and dealing drugs and, you know, selling and committing crimes. So I don't think that's a racist thing to say. It just, it's been hurled so many times baselessly that they're not even talking about the real issue of racism, which I don't think is that big of an issue in the country, you know? I don't think it's that big of an issue across the board. I just want to say that 
racism should not be a big deal, but it is a big deal. I mean, like, I know you don't want to admit it, but, like, I mean, it's... Sh- and it's not the big deal because it's so prevalent. It's a big deal because the media is making it sound like a huge war against races. Yeah, that's And it's just, I know, if you, yeah, I'm just yeah, yeah. trying to reiterate it again. That's just, I mean, my, my parents have come to me and said, son, if anyone starts judging you or, like, hating you for speaking Spanish, please, just don't, don't speak. I'm like, excuse me, mother, I'm not going to stop speaking part of my culture you know it's like i mean you guys raised me like that. i'm not gonna just but like they think it's like a danger like apocalyptic war out here you know and i mean just i just i can't even believe it that, that this we've gone to this point we jumped 35 sharks at this point and it's just uh it's disheartening in my it's just um like we have people living in like different universes in like the same town you know if you, if you catch my drift a little bit yeah I, I really hope the ideal, like, a utopia for me is that one day we'll all see each other as Americans, you know, other than, like, judging us for uh, what we, like, oh, supposedly hold uh, higher than that, you know? Like, oh, I'm an African-American. Americans not American. first. I'm not a Hispanic-American. I'm an American. sentiment of wanting to be American first that left me feeling confused. The message seemed to be that race should be irrelevant. I also feel that way. But I found myself thinking that I agreed with pretty much nothing else I had heard. I didn't hear any open hate, but I hadn't heard any from JP either. I didn't know where the line between them was, where republicanism ended and white nationalism began. I grew up in a liberal household, not in like a progressive, like hippie social justice warrior type of place, but just like a standard, you know, New England blue household. You know, I always loved laughing at the silly old fuddy-duddy neocons like Bush Jr. and Dick Cheney. Most everyone in Western Connecticut grows up liberal, and both Connecticut and J.P.'s county went blue in the 2016 election. You might be able to tell, but J.P. is a bit of a geek. But he formed a strong cohort in high school of fellow weirdos. We're all, like, arm-in-arm, like, marching through this experience that, that every kid has to go through. You know, we all have each other. Did that last? No, no. No, absolutely not. It was sort of like a, uh, once we graduated, it was sort of like a, so long, bye. I almost felt betrayed in a way. You know, I guess that's one of the reasons why I ended up spending more time on the chans. The chans are online forums. The most popular are 4chan and 8chan, both were forums to talk about video games and anime. JP is 26 and he's finally finishing his bachelor's degree this year. He worked in retail or at the local movie theater to stay out of debt. 
He had been on the Chans in high school, but he found himself spending increasing time online when he had few friends after graduation. He said the Chans felt organic and spontaneous. He was soon drawn to the politics board, or poll, which has now become synonymous with internet trolldom. Because I was on 4chan at around halfway through high school, I was also sort of into um, the edginess, too. I sort of always wanted to be, you know, on the cutting edge of the zeitgeist. You know, be on the edge of it, you know, being able to see off into the horizon and being like, <laughs> they have no idea what's coming. Because there's sort of like a cool feeling in that, you know, knowing something that nobody, that nobody else knows. And being on 4chan, you know, I would occasionally see people post things, particularly on the politics board, things that I had never heard discussed or said before. It, you know, on the internet, it almost felt like 4chan was like the Garden of Eden in that like all of the big memes were coming from 4chan, you know, like Rick Rolling and Lolcats. And the poll was sort of like a don't eat from that tree. You know, it was like the forbidden fruit. The tree of knowledge, like, don't eat from there because once you do, you know, you'll become aware of your nakedness. And of course, you know, as what happens, everyone ends up sort of biting into that forbidden fruit. After CPAC, JP was no longer the president of the Young Republicans Club. When Richard Spencer appeared unannounced at the conference, JP got excited. He was cited as a Spencer fanboy across major news outlets. The LA Times described him as saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, he's here, while hopping up and down. Yep, that's JP. The Young Republicans Club released a statement saying that they disavow JP, Richard Spencer, and the alt-right, and that they had asked him to step down as president. They were fine with him before, but what changed? I caught up with JP by phone. I had willingly chosen to resign. Um, it was my decision. You know, I don't want to be mean to people. I don't want to cause people's people problems. I don't want to, you know, infringe on people's rights, or I don't want I don't want to make life difficult for people. You know, I feel that what I'm doing is right, and I and I really do. I do feel that you know what I'm trying to do, or like what I feel is. What are you trying is, to do? Same thing everyone else is trying to do, make the world a better place, I guess. It might not be, you know, good optics. I, th I think that's really what it is. It's so much as like the optics that surround Richard Spencer. And what is it about those optics? Well, uh, some of them are uh, direct fabrications, I would say, like people will say that, oh, Richard Spencer is just like a new rebranding of uh, the KKK in America or something. What if somebody came into your group that was a real skinhead, like swastika tattoos, black boots, shaved head, the whole nine yards that was just, you know, a super nice, like conservative guy? That is an external style choice. That's, a, that's not really what I believe any ideological-based club ought to be about. 
I would probably have a lot of difficulty grappling with that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to be very honest. So it's not your ideas or what you believe in that's a cause for concern. It's how you look. What if David Duke came to your club? I, I would be very deeply concerned, to say the least. I, I would I would not be uh, comfortable with that. Why? I would I would just not be comfortable with a person who has a history uh, with a known hate group speaking at my school or visiting our club. And to well, be truthful, has quite a few connections to known hate groups. I mean, what? At what point is the degree of separation acceptable? That's a good question. I'm, I'm going to be very honest. I, I really don't know where the line would be drawn. I was set to go up and talk to the club again, but then the new vice president, Mike Medeiros, wanted to speak with me. Things got heated, really heated, really fast. He said that I was trying to frame him and his group as white supremacists via their association with JP. After that, the group spent the day calling me, calling JP, and on a group call threatened to sue me if I used any of my recorded material. They said they wanted nothing to do with JP, that he doesn't reflect on them. Did finding out their president was a white nationalist make them question their own conservatism? They didn't want to answer. But it seemed the problem hadn't gone away. On Mike's social media, for example, there were more than a few retweets from not only Richard Spencer, but also VDARE, a white nationalist website named after the first white woman born in the United States, Virginia Dare. Mike even tweeted once, diversity equals white genocide, mixed with retweets from more mainstream conservative outlets like Fox. I don't think he's strictly a white nationalist. I don't think he's a traditional Republican either. And I couldn't get any answer as to the difference between the two, only that the young Republicans insist that they aren't white nationalists, or at least they don't want to be. Did you ever feel like you had a red pill moment? No, actually. For some people, it's like a big event, like the Trayvon Martin case or the Mike Brown case. A lot of people say that they're red pill because of that. For me, it was just never really that. It was, it was, you know, like I said, there was no red pill. It wasn't so much as like one particular thing. But he does say he remembers seeing one video that made him realize the alt-right was something to look into. The video was called St. George and the White Whore from 2014, produced by Red Ice TV and presented by a woman named Lana Lochteff. She spends the hour-long video breaking down an episode of George Lopez's short-lived and widely panned sitcom, St. George. Here's one clip from Lochteff. You're not fooling anyone. We all know you are the racist who is bent on pushing Mexico's welfare above the needs of non-Latino legal Americans. You are a violent Mexican supremacist. And another. Intelligence levels differ among ethnic groups. Hispanics were near the bottom of the IQ bell curve. And another. Whites have been so programmed to despise their own race that they don't even see the strength in helping their own anymore. She concludes by saying, It's time to wake up. This is colonization, and we can stop it. JP agrees, even though his own family are immigrants, and his mother was born in Uruguay. And this coming from someone who, you know, is half Irish, you know, quarter Italian, and they migrated en masse to America. 
because of famine and escaping problems. Yeah, if anything, they were economic migrants. Yeah. But they were white. They were of a Western country going to another Western country. When I asked JP if he had changed any of his beliefs, he said no. At some points I felt like he was telling me what he thought I wanted to hear. I felt that this sanitized version of white nationalism was a lie. It made me both angry and sympathetic. I found myself wanting to tell him that it didn't have to be this way. I wanted to convince him that even if he doesn't feel hate in his heart, what he believes in is really hateful. But it's more that if the superficial details are palatable, then he feels the content doesn't quite matter. The language he uses, the earnestness of it, it really doesn't sound hateful. But those are shallow points. The devil really is in the details. Up next, we have a story from producer Melissa Pinel about the things that immigrants do to assimilate to American life, why, and what gets lost in translation. Here she is. So the first time I ever saw Noel Quiñones was in a YouTube video. He's this really amazing New Yorkan spoken word artist, and he wrote this heartfelt, painful poem about not knowing Spanish. But wait, why didn't his parents teach him Spanish? Well, yeah, that's actually the first question he gets when people realize he's not fluent. It's complicated. It probably has to do with his maternal grandmother. She first arrived in the U.S. directly from Puerto Rico in the 1940s. And when she would walk to school, kids would spit on her because she didn't understand the language. So her first experiences in the country were pretty traumatic. So she just wanted to forget Spanish entirely. I guess she mostly wanted her kids to not go through the things that she had gone through. And by the time Noel came around, that just meant that he didn't learn Spanish at all. Eight Confessions of My Tongue. One. I have snuck past the borders of another mouth today made an accent taste like kinship, and watch myself drown in false comfort. There's always a countdown when you realize I am not fluent in Spanish. You expected the waterfall, the spit that crossed the ocean, the syllable suffocating dance, and it is a dance. This moving, weaving, searching, turn your back on what you can never keep up with. I contain so much sad brown mouth that I can't even pronounce Quiñones without a stranger examining the air it took to learn it. I'm the one who, like does the countdown in my head. So like I'll meet someone and I mean I look stereotypically 
Puerto Rican or like New Yorican. Many people, you know, people on the train, people on the street would always like come and ask me for directions and, you know, they would ask me in Spanish. And so as soon as they asked me, I would look at my watch and I would say, okay, how long can I last until they realize that I am not fluent? I remember like I got to like a minute and 30 seconds once and I like told my parents and I was really proud, right? But, and, and so in that moment I was really proud, but, but to look back on that is very sad once they figure it out it's like this very like you could see it travel from their face to their body you know when they when they find out that I'm not fluent it's like a like pity um, and like sadness two everything here is a thievious memory a hungry thing gobbling itself into existence. I listen to Daddy Yankee, Evie Queen. Tego Calderon make a bastion for reggaeton in my throat, but can't tell you what the songs mean. I yell Mark Anthony lyrics and think volume equates to knowledge. I tell myself it's not lying if I feel something, but I'm always the last one to yell wepa, forever late to my own identity. I was in middle school at the height of reggaeton. I remember specifically my eighth grade prom was they almost only specifically played reggaeton. So it was all like Gasolina and Rompe and uh, all these songs. And so I was dancing and I, you know, I looked at some of my um, the other students in my grade uh, and they were like singing along and I was singing along, but I didn't really know what I was saying. The cultural significance of the music, like beyond language, is really important to me. That like I found my my first connection with, I think, or or trying to find Puerto Rican identity on my own was through dancing and was through salsa. And I, I think a lot about how salsa means so much to me even without me understanding the words, like the the rhythms and the beats and the the kind of significance it has in my family and the fact that I I'm proud to know the history of, of salsa and proud to, to be able to dance it three my tongue is a countryless serpent they whisper of my fraud on the block and in the classroom, but all I have are these two false skins stitched into a name. I've worn so many of my family members' stories that I confuse my childhood for theirs. My parents grew up in poverty. Uh, my dad in the Bronx and my mom in Harlem and struggled in a way that I've never had to, to struggle. I find, or I found myself, I, I would never explicitly like say that I had grown up the same way, but I did certain things. And the way in which if you're silent on something, you're also not disproving it. I led a lot of people to believe that like I had grown up in kind of a similar situation to them when I hadn't. 
all to kind of showcase this this perceived identity of what Puerto Ricans should be. My dad called me out, and he was just like, you're putting on this show that you've like experienced like what I have and you haven't. And I worked really hard for you not to, to have experienced what, what I've experienced and, and grow up the way that I did. Uh, and so it, it took a lot of, a lot for me. I had to step back and, and really understand that uh, and, and take that in. I mean, it was, it was embarrassing. I was, I was embarrassed. I had fallen victim to, to trying to prove negative stereotypes. And it also makes me think about how psychological it is and how the, the spaces I had started to enter because of all his hard work that I had gotten, you know, to go to a really nice college and like a great high school. And in those environments, there's this constant push for you to exemplify what everyone thinks you should exemplify as, as a, a brown person. I wanted it, you know, I wanted, I wanted to, to do that because it's so much harder to, to like live in a limbo, like an in-between space where you're not really that, but you're not really that either. It's so easy to go to one of the extremes, and so I found myself going to that. Four. I can't remember the last time I didn't use Google Translate to prove myself to a poem. Five. This means I am not as fluent as my poems. They are an imagined Latinidad, where I taste the shore and it accepts me. Where my grandmother wasn't spit on every day for not knowing English and you can see it in my father's amnesia. When I ask him about our indigenous language, and he laughs 6,000 dead bodies onto the dinner tables. One of the reasons why I wrote this poem at all was because as I was going on tour, without, I didn't have this poem in my, kind of in my performances, and I have some poems that are fully in Spanish. And so everyone would assume that I was fluent. You know, I would get off stage and be like, start talking, you know, having a conversation with me in Spanish, and I would stumble through it. I was like, I need a poem that, that tells people that I'm not fluent because it, you know, I felt like I was lying. I had to be honest. And that's why that fourth confession was the hardest one to write because it was the one that exposed me. That I have, I have full poems in Spanish, full, I have full rap verses in Spanish, right? But that took hours on Google Translate. Right, and that took hours. Like, I call my grandmother. I'm like, is this right? How do you say this? Six. I practice a self-torture in front of the mirror every morning. Mimic whatever words I stole to make myself a more Latin thing. Cambiara. Servilleta. Compañero. My skin. Always mistaken for home, my last name, an invitation to strangers who say your parents should have taught you. But my parents say it's my fault. And I remember the first time I asked for help. One to use bol y para in a sentence and they said you just feel it. You're just supposed to feel it. Seven. I don't.
I have another poem where I sing some lyrics from Hector Lavo. And so one of the words was cambiara. And I couldn't say it when I was first, when I first wrote that poem. And so I spent like a few hours with my, my dad going over and over and over and over, just saying it until I got it right. Cambiara. It literally means change. It's one of those things where the work I put into it exemplified what it actually meant. And that leads to, it's, it's never going to leave me. Like, it's, it's stuck in, in my head. The other word is servilleta, which is, it's, it's interesting because sometimes when I perform that poem and it's a Latino audience, they just laugh because they're like, these are all random, like, these are super random words. Why are you saying napkin? But the story behind that word is that I was visiting my cousins in Boston and they had all grown up in Puerto Rico. And we were walking, and they were making fun of me because I was not fluent. It's July 4th. And it's one specific cousin, and she's so much younger than me. She's like a child. She was like, I don't know, eight or nine years old, right? But fluent in Spanish, I was so jealous, so angry. She kept making fun of me because I couldn't say servilleta. I came back home from that visit, and I practiced for days. I was like, I'm going to be able to say this word. The last word is compañero. That gets closer to, like, I want that feeling. I think my proudest day will be when someone, like, sees me and they just immediately, like, call me compañero, right? Or call me mi pana. All these words that signify to me, like, family connection, right? With the, but with a stranger. Eight. My tongue is a gringo's last hope, a stutter beneath a foreign accent mark, a transcontinental thing stuck in its own ocean, and so I flood Quiñones onto my grandmother's lap. Que vergüenza, she says. Now you don't belong anywhere. since I wrote that poem and the the poems I'm working on right now are all about trying to make a home from the in-between because for a while I was writing poems like I'm gonna make it to one of the extremes of one side of this spectrum right I'm gonna be I'm gonna one day I'm gonna feel fully Puerto Rican I'm gonna feel, feel fully Latino I'm gonna feel fully American and and I'm in a place in my life right now where I'm accepting that like, it's okay to be in limbo. It's okay to be in between as long as you start to build an identity and, like, a house there. This is the NYU Journalism Podcast produced by me, Carol Schaefer, Melissa Pinel, and Eli Curland.